Welcome to the Chaya Podcast, a sacred platform where Jewish Iranian changemakers turn taboo topics into transformational opportunities for the community. I'm your hostess, Nicole Napovar, a licensed psychotherapist with a private practice in Century City. And I'm also the co-founder of Chaya, a community of intimate gatherings for Jewish Iranians to experience meaningful connection and deepen their sense of self. The intention of this podcast is to support our listeners' evolution by challenging the rules our parents and community want for us in order to have their definition of the best life. Instead, let's decide from a more conscious place in our souls which practices we want to keep, which ones we want to let go of, and how we can own those decisions with grace so that we can thrive in more fulfilling and authentic lives. This is the Chaya Podcast, and I'm your hostess, Nicole Nappola. I have a very special guest today, Angela Nazarian. She is a best-selling author and sought-after international speaker. She incorporates her training in psychology and teaching experience in creating dynamic and engaging speaking engagements and workshops. Angela is also the co-founder and CFO of Visionary Woman, a nonprofit women's leadership organization in Los Angeles that brings together some of the most dynamic thought leaders in the country. Angelino Magazine has listed her as one of their top 12 philanthropists in LA, and she recently released her book, Creative Couples, Collaborations That Changed History. So I'm so excited and honored to have her here with us today at the Chaya Podcast. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Nicole, for having me. I know that you um, have dedicated three years to writing this book, and you interviewed a lot of different couples, and I'm curious to know... Um, how many biographies did you go through and, you know, how did you choose the couples that you ultimately ended up showcasing in your book? Thank you for that question. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why I write these books is because I enjoy the process of reading and exploration more than even the writing. And then when I read, all these ideas come to my mind. I think one of the um, uh, big things that came to me while I did my two books on women's leadership and I was speaking at various women's conferences was the whole idea that women are not in a vacuum. And a lot of the women that I actually showcased in my other books had a partner or a father or a male partner in some way mm -hmm. that was very supportive of their work and they were seminal in their achievements. So the question for me was, can I find couples where they, you know, a man and a woman who were not only romantically involved, but they worked together. And because of their work, they made a major impact in 20th century culture. So that was the prerequisite for choosing those couples. So when you look at all the couples that I've really showcased, somehow they were the forerunners of something very important in the 20th century. And how many biographies did I read? You know, just in terms of the biographies that I covered in the book, mm -hmm. I had over 400 source materials. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so the back of the book is many pages long of bibliography. <laughs> so that was uh, something. In terms of biographies, I probably went through you know, 100 or 150, and I came out with 15. Mm. And um, what really happens is that you have to read one couple's biography and then the other couple's biography, and then somehow see how you can mesh a story together mm. that's compelling. Um, the other thing that I wanted to really explore 
is that if we have these power couples, these are two high achieving uh, people that are in relation to each, uh, with each other in the long term for a long period of time. And how do two high achieving individuals interact with one another? What are some of the compromises and concessions and how do they make it work? Mm-hmm. And um, with that, there's a lot of dynamics. The dynamics is what if the woman was the the more significant figure in the couplehood? Mm-hmm. Uh, what if the man was? What if the because of the timing and you know our culture, the woman was so significant, but nobody knew about her. Mm-hmm. So, and what is what if a couple they you know decide to separate? What happens to their work? Mm-hmm. So these are all the things that I wanted to actually go under the hood and figure out the real complex dynamics of relationships. Yeah, I think that's relevant at any you know era, any age, and I think it's very true that we're even you know our generation we're dating and we're trying to figure out new gender roles and dynamics and you know divorce is more prevalent than ever and people are separating and trying to balance their lives and figure out how to move forward and oftentimes I think we struggle because a lot of couples I I, you know they're presenting themselves as everything's great and everything's perfect and I get that and I totally understand you want to protect what you have and you want to be careful about who you share or what you share in your relationship but thank you for creating this resource for us to go and really start to look at a little bit more of the complexity and how people move through these challenges. Exactly, exactly. And anyone who's been in a long-term relationship can say it could be one of the most gratifying, Mm -hmm. fulfilling experiences. But at the same token, there's a lot, you know, because you're a therapist, I know that you have great appreciation for this. But I think that being in a relationship is one of the vehicles for self-growth and to understand yourself better and better mm-hmm. because the other partner serves as the mirror for everything that you do. Mm-hmm. So what is a point of attraction to you with the other can become a point of real frustration, you know, 10 years down the line because they're not like you, right? right? It's the trade-off. Yeah, it's a trade-off. <laughs> yeah. So what made you decide on those final 15 what was the criteria for that? The criteria was very, I mean, it's it's the high standard of um, who were the big change makers of 20th century. So I mm-hmm. went by that. Okay. And then it happened so that each of these people had really, really rich and interesting stories. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, obviously when you go, um, when you... When you are actually covering pioneers and change makers, one of the things that happens is that by virtue, they're just not conservative people. I mean, if you're just pushing (laughs) the boundaries of work and everything else, how can you be conservative in your life? Mm -hmm. The way is that they push boundaries everywhere. And some of these couples, they also even push boundaries on let's let's figure out what is a marriage. You know, I talk about Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre. Mm And, you know, I think that they were the seminal couple of the 1960s, both of them brilliant minds. Jean-Paul Sartre was the, uh, you know, founder of existential, uh, existential philosophy. And what she and, you know, Simone de Beauvoir is probably the first feminist that wrote about feminism. And their relationship was so unlike anything I could have ever imagined. And some of these details have come about only, 
in the past five years because some of their secret diaries have been published before nobody knew about the intricacies of it. But, you know, they presented a front to the whole world saying, you don't need marriage. You can be in a relationship and not be married. And we're, we've loved it. But, you know, when you go into their relationship, you can see they loved being together, but it was a very difficult relationship. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to explore what does it mean not to be married, but be together for 50 years. Yeah. Wow. So that was their, you know, their exploration. Yeah. And I think, you know, even as it pertains to the Jewish Iranian community, our generation is beginning to experiment with polyamory and not getting married or, you know, um, just staying together and committing every single day. But maybe you it's for today and then you see what happens. So Right. Or even more conservative than that, I think. It's the first time that I'm seeing a young younger generations maybe living together right before yeah. getting married which I would say even 10 years ago that was a big no-no. Yeah. So what were some of the common themes that you've noticed with these couples? Well, the common theme uh, was that these couples they wouldn't have accomplished what they had uh, that they did mm-hmm. if it, they weren't together. Because each one brought such complementary skills to their work. So that is really interesting. And how the state of couplehood is like a state of alchemy. That two people come together and there's this like combustion. Something happens that's quite magical when two people come together. Some of the other things that I would say, what do they have in common, is that they all sensed, they had a sense of purpose. Uh, both for their relationship and for their work. And that sense of purpose brought them together in a very meaningful way. And you noticed, or at least I noticed through research, is that when couples are together for long periods periods of time, and as you know, since you work with so many people, is that we're all, you know, we're not fixed entities. So we change throughout our lives. And how important it is for the partner to be cognizant of the changes of of their partner mm-hmm. and to be able to, you know, uh, kind of pivot with the partner and understand that change yeah. in order for it to be successful. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I read some of your previous books and I noticed a theme. Maybe I was going through like a dark phase in my life, but I was yeah. like, wow, these women went on to become who they were because they either got divorced or they lost their husbands early on or they couldn't rely on their husbands. And I had a moment when I was honestly reading and I was like, maybe we can't have both or maybe sometimes we have to pick between our career or being in a relationship. And I'm so happy to hear and so excited and obviously have done the work since then to know that both can exist and can enhance one another. Absolutely. And not only that, I mean, when you look, I, my previous book, I talked about Madame Curry, but she, she and her husband were devoted to each other. Yeah. Or even, um, Shirin Nishat and her partner. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot that, there's a lot of people who do remain together, but as we all know, I mean, 50% of relationships are unsuccessful. Perhaps, you know, even with our Persian community, and this is something, a conversation that happened recently, 
uh, a younger generation member, you know, an older generation member said, look, we were set up and we were together and we had very good marriages. We didn't have divorce. Mm -hmm. And um, this younger man, young man in his 20s said, well, I just wonder if all those marriages that stayed together were the happiest of marriages or were they the most fulfilling? And of course, nobody's in anybody's shoes to really know. Yeah. And sometimes your value system is such that keeping a family unit together or whatever it is, is probably a higher priority than anything else. So, you know, be it cultures change, people's value systems change. And we also have to be mindful that we're not in anybody's shoes to make that decision. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Can you tell us a bit more about what you found to be the source of attraction between two people? A female is not just all feminine. Mm -hmm. Each person has some feminine and some masculine traits. Mm -hmm. So we have feminine and masculine polarities within us. So as women, we are more nurtured towards nurturing our female side. And oftentimes our male side is underdeveloped. So the underdeveloped male side finds the male in the outside world that is most like what your blueprint of a male is, and you get attracted to it. So this attraction is oftentimes very, very unconscious. Mm. And one of the big things that we I always say is that if you want to get attracted to the right people, you have to know yourself very well. Yeah, absolutely. The less work you do, the more unaware you are, the more your psyche just gets attracted to all the things mm -hmm. that you need to resolve in, in yourself mm -hmm. through that relationship. Yeah, that whole like, oh my God, there was a spark and I don't know, but if it just feels so drawn to this person and it's that I don't know that you have to like explore and get clear on, okay, so what yeah. is it? You what know? is your model for masculinity? Mm -hmm. And who were those first role models in your life? Oftentimes, it's the brothers and the fathers that we um, have relationships with that right. create that kind of um, uh, modeling for us. And for for men, it's the same. That whatever is underdeveloped, that man gets attracted to the feminine of the, the woman that they see in the outside world. Mm. So one uh, good example from my book is... Um, the story between Serge Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin. Mm -hmm. So Serge Gainsbourg, I would say he's one of the most talented and gifted songwriters and musicians in France. And his wife, Jane Birkin, was not only a singer, but, a, but an actress. And the whole Birkin bag came from her, although she's not a fashionista whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but the story about um, Serge is that he was a complete womanizer. And he was not a very good-looking man at all. I mean, you'll see pictures in the book. Not good-looking, but women would flock to him during the occupation of Nazi uh, Germany in, in France. Him and his family had to hide because they were Jewish. Mm. So there was a certain f kind of shame that he felt, not in being Jewish, because the first thing that he actually did when he made a lot of money. He went to Cartier and got himself a platinum uh, Star of David to put on his chest. But the fact that there was a shaming in being less than other people. Mm. There was a shaming in, in being hidden or uh, being persecuted. Mm -hmm. 
and he kept his emotions so in check that he was never really that vulnerable. So what he would do, I mean, he got attracted to Jane because she was so much younger and very, very vulnerable.、Mm. And he would write all these poems about being heartsick, or you know, all these emotional poems, and he would give it to her to sing. It's almost like having her be the voice of his re- of his feelings. Exactly,、mm-hmm. exactly. And that's what I say is that kind of attraction that you get attracted because your psyche feels that by having that person in your life, you will either work something out with it, or they could be like another. Way of you expressing yourself. Interesting. So the underdeveloped parts of ourselves, we look to our partner to sort of show us the way or help us develop that part of ourselves. So that's the beginning of attraction, and、mm-hmm. then the beginning of growth is that middle pe- period or the plateau period, where the attraction is there, but you're taking back your projections because the first thing you do is when you meet someone. Is that you project everything wonderful about that person,、yeah. and then you get to know them, and they're just a human being, just like yourself. <laughs> and then you start thinking, okay, you know, if one person is an introvert and the other one a, an extrovert, they then they start talking about, well, you don't talk enough, or you don't go out enough. The other one says you go out all the time. Yeah. So then it's the negotiation. So the next part is taking back those projections, and what do you do with that? Those Challenges. So, what did you find? Did you find anything as you were doing this research on how to manage that, or how to work through those negotiations? Yeah, I mean, you know, we had、um, in the book. There's a couple of、uh, really fantastic role models. I mean,、um, the story about, and I did the interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg,、mm-hmm. and、um, her husband Marty was、uh, incredibly inspiring. Because what you would see is that they would trade off roles all throughout their lives.、Mm-hmm. My, most people know know Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, she's a cultural icon,、um, you know, on the Supreme Court.、Mm-hmm. And most people know nothing about Marty.、Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about Marty is that he was a brilliant tax lawyer. They decided they got married very young, and that's the the other thing is that when you get married young, you may Have decades and decades of growth with each other, right? And you're never going to be the same person as you were when you were 20. They decided that they wanted to go to graduate school together, based on the fact that they wanted to have more things in common. That's interesting.、It. So they first wanted to go and study business, but they noticed that Harvard didn't have an MBA program for women. Wow! So they switched over. I mean, it was just like. Just serendipity. They switched to law because then Ruth and him could go to law school together. Wow! Isn't that sweet? And at the time, they had a newborn, and uh, Marty um, uh, actually gets cancer.、Mm-hmm. So what happens is that Ruth goes to his classes, takes notes, and does half his homework with him so that he won't miss a year. Wow! So that kind of sacrifice. I think it's very, very necessary and oftentimes vital for a relationship to keep growing. And then, you know, Ruth was also the person that, when、uh, Marty got a job in New York, she switched and went to Columbia to be with him.、Mm-hmm. And、um, you know, and then very when she decided that she wanted to work at, at ACLU and then really take public office, he's the one that said, "Now it's my turn. 
I'll support you. She wanted to do research for 10 months abroad. He said, it's okay, I'll take care of the kids. I mean, there's something very interesting about that dynamic where they both knew how to shift roles. Sometimes it was him supporting her and sometimes she supporting him. Right. And it allowed both of them to sort of reach their potential. Exactly. And, you know, one of the love, I mean, I think it's a beautiful love letter, and I published it in the book. It's the last letter that he wrote to Ruth before he went to um, to the hospital. And she had a case, so she had to be present at the Supreme Court. But he said, you know, I think one of the biggest missions in my life was supporting you. And he felt very good about it. I love that. Yeah, isn't that so beautiful, so yeah. open-hearted? Yeah, and it's interesting because I'm hearing this, and I feel like for women these days, if the roles were reversed, and if you read the same love letter from a woman, you might there might be shame around that. Oh, you're so right. You know? You're so right. And I think that, you know, because I'm involved in the, you know, I have a women's nonprofit, I always say that we need to respect people's choices. Not everybody. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fantastic thing for women to stay at home and raise kids if that's what they choose to do. Absolutely. It's a calling. You know, raising good human beings is a is an important thing. And if those, you know, some women want to work outside, that's fine too. I mean, we need to have room for all kinds of lifestyles. Absolutely. And all kinds of choices and all right. kinds of, you know, who are we to say that one woman isn't called to do the hardest job in the world to be yeah. a mother, you know, and that another woman isn't called to be traveling and doing her thing maybe on the road or being abroad and exactly. you know, not being as present in the home. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think part of a really healthy, in my opinion at least, um, couplehood is how can you be more yourself? Mm -hmm. How can you be more yourself in the couplehood? I know you're... Persian Jewish, I'm Persian Jewish, our co-founders at Chai are Persian Jewish, and I'm curious to know how you see the strengths of couplehood in the Jewish Iranian community. What are some things that you would also wish were different, mm -hmm. and what's your vision for couplehood moving forward in our community? Right. Um, what, a, uh, what a rich and complicated question. <laughs> I think... You know, there's something very beautiful, and I'll say that having traditional values is a double-edged sword. I'll talk about some of the really good things about it, because I think it's necessary to hold on to those things. It's having sound values, values of family, togetherness, belonging. Um, I oftentimes have found that some of the more traditional values are more collectivistic, you know. Yeah. So you're more willing to give of yourself for the betterment of the whole. Mm -hmm. And I think those things are really important mm -hmm. in relationship building, in family building, in community building. It can't be, it's all about me. Absolutely. So I think those are just such vital things within our culture that I think we need to hold on to. Um what are the, some of the things that I think are deterrents? I think because we sometimes hold on to all of our traditional things, we lose sight of our own individuality in some ways. Mm -hmm. So if, if a girl wants to um, get married later, 
maybe now it's a little easier, but you know, there's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. Or um, how many kids they should have. I mean, maybe it's it depends on their lifestyle or what they want to have. I mean, is what there they can have? You oh, know? Yeah. There's this expectation that, like, again, like our mother's generation, they were getting married a lot younger, having kids a lot earlier, and you know, what about when you're older and maybe your fertility is different or your partner's fertility is different, you know? Yeah. So so I feel like the prescribed, uh, I just have a real, you know, charge <laughs> um, when I feel that people put uh, a framework around what is a successful human being mm -hmm. and what does a successful relationship look like. Um, you have to have this kind of job. Uh, I mean, you know, up until 10 years ago, people in the creative fields were looked down upon. Yeah. Um, anything that was more intellectual was more, I mean, being creative is really a, also is a flash of brilliance there. Absolutely. And it's hard work. Absolutely. If you want to follow this formula of what it means to be a successful Persian Jew and marry a specific person or have a specific income or raise this many kids, that's fine. That's great. You know, it's yeah. been tested generation over generation, and it's coming from the best of intentions when it's taught to us. But one of the things that we want to do at Chaya is get more conscious about those choices yeah. and really ask ourselves, you know, which of these rules do we want to continue to follow? Which ones do we want to break? And which ones do we want to redefine? Or, or what new rules do we want to set for ourselves, you know? And so my question for you is maybe on a more vulnerable level is what is one rule that you've broken in the Jewish Iranian community and how did it serve you or what did you gain from that? Yes. Well, I'm uh, happy to answer that. I think it's important to have a, a level of openness. Um, I want to preface my by first talking about my, my own family culture. Um, for us as a family, education was very, very important. I have two brothers who are doctors and um, I spent age 11 until age 16 almost with my siblings. So I, in some ways, was raised in a very young family, but my parents were older and more traditional. So when they came from Iran, uh, and I was always a very good student, um, I had just uh, finished, I was finishing high school and going into college. And Again, it was very important to me. I was like, for school, I was a research assistant. I was doing all kinds of things. And my, at the time, there was like this whole Hasagari thing. So <laughs> um, people would call and they, my parents would just relay the message and they'd say, what do you think, Angela? And I would say, oh, I'm just too young. I want to study. And my, my parents would say, okay, we respect it. So lo and behold, I'm like, I'm only still 19, by the way. But that, that was the tradition. Yeah. Once um, my father came to me and he asked me, he said, well, what if a fantastic person comes, like the person of your dreams, and he tells you that you get married, but you can't, you can't continue studying. Would you agree to marry him? And I said, no. I mean, I didn't even... You know, I'm Lynch. like, no, and my father's like, what? <laughs> and he's like, oh, my God. But in his frame of mind, he just didn't understand why, like, my personal 
uh, happiness would be to be with in a good marriage, which I agree with it. But I think a good marriage entails more things. Um, Goes back to your book of what you were saying. It's like, you know, studying and education and pursuing your passions is a part of who you are. And if you can't be who you are, then then it's not. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So funny enough, um, you know, when I started going out with David, David's I I knew David's uh, sister from high school. She was also very much like me. And I knew David's sister was becoming an architect. I mean, I knew that his family system and family values is that he was raised with a lot of women around him that were very intelligent and motivated to do things outside of the house. Mm -hmm. So the sweetest thing is that when I was getting married, my uh, father pulls David aside. Of course, it was a given that I was going to finish my studies and go to graduate school. But he goes... I request one thing from you, that you you let Angela study, oh, which is very so sweet, sweet because it shows that even if he didn't understand me, my parent and my father, he's so respected. He's yeah. so respected what I wanted to do. And of course, for David, it was a no. I mean, there was no question yeah. that that would happen. And so one of the things that I went against, it's not only the the continuing with my education. I think when I had Philip after six months, I went to David and I said, I want to do something outside of the house because I feel like I can do, I can feel, I would feel more productive and still be happy and around with Philip. And there was a lot of guilt and shame about that because Mm -hmm. I didn't know any, many people Mm -hmm. that were doing that. Especially when they say, you don't need to work. You don't need to make money. So why are you doing it? Right. So for me, it took me a long time. And I was a part-time faculty. I was a professor, which enabled me to really spend a lot of time at home. And during my office hours, I would take Philip with the caretaker to on campus. So, But it wasn't that much time away. But I was doing something that made me feel like I was still continuing something that was important to me. Um. And it was a, yeah, I I got a lot of judgment about that. Mm. Or some people would say, oh, that's a nice hobby you have. Mm. (laughs) I'm like, okay, being a professor at a university is not exactly a hobby. But um, I don't think I fully felt comfortable about my choice because I had to always explain myself Mm. and say, oh, but, you know, I don't take that much time off. I don't do this until I was in my mid-30s, believe it or not. Wow. Mm-hmm. Takes time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as something that I also, I've struggled with that as a woman as well, it's like this need to always explain yourself and explain why you're doing things or, you know, it's not it's not that bad or what you think it is or whatever. And it's like we don't have to explain ourselves. We I know. We really don't. The thing is that I think we carry some of those value systems within ourselves anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's like two things yeah. Um, conflicting. Com- yeah, conflicting. Yeah, absolutely. And when the you know you don't have those kinds of role models around you, yeah, and you say, "What's wrong with me?" Yeah, yeah, it's hard. You have to really look at it and really ask yourself, "Okay, well, you know, American society thinks this way about what I'm doing, and Persian Jewish society thinks this way about yeah. what I'm doing. So, you know, what do I think of this, and what do I actually want, and what feels right for me?" So. And, you know, in hindsight, now that I'm uh, 52, <laughs> I can say, and my kids are grown, um, 
I'm so glad that I held on to the things that were important to me as a person because I feel that if my entirety of my identity was around being somebody's wife and somebody's mom, for me, mm-hmm. I would have had a very hard time when the kids had moved out. Mm-hmm. I feel like, and I'm just by nature a very curious person. Right. So I just feel like that's my way, that's my energy. I like to connect. I want to move things and make changes. And that has been a playground for me. And it was, you know, whatever I did before was also a training ground for me to do the important work that I'm doing now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing courageously and openly. And I hope that this book is, you know, really people go out there and they buy it and they read and they get inspired and they learn from it. So how can we purchase your book? Where can we find it? Yes. So it's, uh, believe it or not, it's going into a second edition, which I'm very excited about. Um, You can purchase it on Amazon. And my publishers are Oseline. And if you go on the Oseline website, you can purchase it. We're at the PDC. Oseline has a store here as well, downstairs. So they carry the book as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you, you. Angela, for joining us. Thank you. Hey, Chaya family. Thank you for tuning in. This episode was brought to you by Chaya Community, a sacred space for Jewish Iranians to experience meaningful connection and deepen their sense of self. It's also brought to you by WeWork, finally a space that works how you do. WeWork's new media and entertainment locations are wired and ready for your next big creative project. From soundproof editing rooms to state-of-the-art screening rooms, our media-ready spaces have you covered from pilot to wrap. Book a tour of our newest M&E building at the Pacific Design Center, Green, by visiting we.co slash entertainment. Again, that's we.co slash entertainment. Artist Chloe Primarati. This song, entitled Ina, is off her award winning album, Begin Majesty.